this is thrilling. I believe that there are some spirits that come to this earth with a passion to learn. And they do that so that we can be the ones they teach. And I, Susan Easton Black is such an example of that. There's probably not one of us here that do not relate her name to, to research and love for the gospel and the history of the church. So it is a blessing today to welcome her with us and her husband, Brother Durant. We're so grateful that he could be here and support her too. So let me give this introduction. Susan Easton Black was born and reared in Long Beach, California. Susan was the first woman to teach religion at BYU and the first woman to receive the Carl G. Mazur Distinguished Faculty Lecture Award for her research and writing, the highest award given to a professor at BYU. She has written over 160 books and hundreds of articles. Susan has served <clears throat> several missions for the church and is currently serving a mission in the family and priesthood department. So with that, we turn the time over to Sister Black and pray that the clock will stand still so we can enjoy every second of the next hour. Sister Black. Well, hi, everyone. If I had other talents, I would have done that instead. Uh, I realize that you look at me, I look a little bit odd. I had a, well, I'd like to tell you it was plastic surgery gone awry, but uh, some cancer on my eyelid and it's uh, recovering, so I'm a week off of surgery. So if I look different, uh, give me a week and I'll look pretty much the same, I hope. So uh, with that, my topic I've been asked to speak about is the martyrdom, and uh, so with that, I'm going to take you from uh, the morning of June 24, 1844, uh, to the death of the prophet on June 27th. So notice I'm taking just a few days. Uh, as a background to it, as we pick up the prophet Joseph, I stand six feet tall. He is reported to be portly, and I'll let you imagine that. And uh, he is now 38 and a half years old. He is mayor of one of the largest communities in Illinois called Nauvoo. He's founder of this point of 24 smaller communities in Hancock County, of which Nauvoo is a part. He has founded 15 communities in Iowa, and he's running for president of these United States. The next candidate to be shot while running for president of these United States was in my lifetime, Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, by the time we're picking up Joseph, he's already gone through um, actually two different arrests and been freed on, on bail. And as we pick him up on June 24th, he's over in a place called Iowa. He is very familiar with Iowa, he has formed a stake over there called the Zarahemla Stake, which has been abandoned by 1844. But nevertheless, we have literally thousands of Latter-day Saints on the Iowa side. Notice at this point, there are 26 states in the United States, and Iowa is our one territory. So Joseph's in Iowa, plans have been made for him to go west along with Hiram 
and with our famous gunslinger, Orrin Porter Rockwell. And, uh, but the decision is made, made by Joseph as we start. Everybody got where I'm at so far? Good. The decision has been made by Joseph on June 24th that he will return to Nauvoo and from there then travel on to Carthage. So on June 24th, early in the morning, he and Hiram, along with 40 friends that have been with him in Iowa, including the most famous friends, John Taylor and Willard Richards, the only two men not serving political missions to try and push forward Joseph's candidacy for president of these United States, now make the decision that they will cross the river and return to Nauvoo when so Joseph and Hiram can say goodbye to their families and then proceed on to Carthage, which is 23 miles from Nauvoo. Uh, we focus first on Hiram. Once they cross the Mississippi River and are back in their beautiful Nauvoo and beloved Nauvoo, as they arrive back, Hiram now stops to say good, uh, goodbye to his wife, Mary Fielding Smith. Mary Fielding Smith at that point has two children. Her oldest is six-year-old Joseph F. Smith. Hiram will stay long enough with uh, his wife Mary to not only tell her goodbye, but to take a moment to read from the Book of Mormon. Where they will read is the Book of Ether. So perhaps today in your reading of the Book of Mormon, you may want to pause and say, hey, I, I want to remember Mary Fielding Smith and Hiram, their last experience. There were a lot of sobs, not only while reading, but as they spoke. It awakened then their six-year-old son, Joseph F. Smith, despite the fact we're looking about six in the morning. Joseph F. Smith will go outside to play marbles in the dirt as his father, Hiram, comes out and Hiram gets on his horse. He will see his young son, Joseph F. Smith, he reaches down, he scoops him up, and he places him in front of him on the horse so that he can look directly at his son. What Hiram, Hiram's last words to his son who will serve as a prophet from 1901 until 1918 is, never forget me, I will die for the truth. Now, I don't know what you'd like your last words to be, uh, for, for family members, but that's the last words that Joseph F. Smith recalled. Never forget me, I will die for the truth. In the meantime, Joseph now stops to see Emma. Emma is now pregnant. Um, it's her ninth pregnancy and 11th child. She is five months pregnant, and as Joseph stops to see her, the scene is dramatically different. Emma is thrilled that Joseph has returned. She has written him a letter asking him to return. She is actually a really good friend with the governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, and um, she's done several Relief Society things uh, for him that's uh, resulted in charity works throughout Illinois. And uh, she is confident that it's just one more trial. Now, notice by this point, Joseph has already faced 38 trials. So what's one more? As Joseph stops to see Emma, she is thrilled. There is not this sense of sorrow. And uh, Joseph tries to, uh, to console her, but, but there's no need for, 
in any kind of uh, feeling of being consoled. And, and at one point he says to her, you would like to give her a priesthood blessing. But he says that he does not have time, but he gives her an opportunity, something I've wanted all the days of my life. He gives her an opportunity, says to her, now write down your blessing and send it to me in Carthage, and anything you ask for will be yours. Now, how many times have I said to George, I want a blessing, and here's what I want you to tell me. You know, but alas, but you'd say, Emma uh, has that chance. And notice she's uh, a year and a half older than Joseph. She stands five feet nine. Joseph described her as big bones. And uh, she, she has that opportunity. In the meantime, Hiram has come, as have those 40 friends that had been with Joseph in, in Iowa. They now proceed to go 23 miles to Carthage. As uh, they start to head out from Nauvoo, Joseph pauses at the bluff there in Nauvoo, pretty close to where you now see the temple. The temple at the time was a story and a half high. Joseph stops and he looks out over the bluff. He can see that Nauvoo's starting to wake up. You know, roosters are crowing, you know, people are getting in their yards. And uh, he turns to his friends and he says, this is the best people. And uh, he said, but literally, uh, little do they know the trials that soon await them. Now, uh, he then turned to one man with him and said, I will give my life for Nauvoo. Now, notice as you read section 35, you can't find that in there, but you can definitely find it in journals. So if you haven't seen Nauvoo, but you've seen Disneyland, what, what are you thinking? You know, Joseph is saying, I will give my life for Nauvoo. Well, he now works his way via horseback along with others. They get within five miles of Carthage and they will be turned around by Governor Ford's men. Now, as they are turned around, they are now, they will come back to Nauvoo. So notice it will be Joseph's second time in Nauvoo. This time, he will not stop by to say goodbye to Emma and Hiram won't stop by to say goodbye to Mary Fielding Smith or Joseph F. Smith, why are they turned around? And it's because Governor Ford now wants all the weapons of the Nauvoo Legion, which are state issued, to be returned and to given over to uh, government officials. So notice they come back. When they come back, you'd say, what does the state take? They take two cannons. They take pistols, they take swords, they take weapons. Well, okay, just as an aside, in September, when Governor Ford, notice after this, comes to visit Nauvoo, Brigham Young says, he calls out the Nauvoo Legion, he says, let us parade before Governor Ford. But he tells the men, I, I want you to get your son's toy swords and toy wooden guns, and you're gonna parade with those. Well, Governor Ford sees, you know, the uniforms of the Nauvoo Legion. But then he turns to Brigham Young and he goes, why in the world do you have them parading with toys, with these wooden swords, wooden guns? And Brigham Young's comment was, we used to have arms, but when our chieftain was about to fall, you disarmed us. So, okay, 
and he's staying on Governor Ford, you bet. If you see him first in the next life, you know, da-da-da-da. You know, bad, bad choices were made along the way by you. Okay, so here we go. Joseph then sees that the Nauvoo Legion is disarmed, and Joseph and Hiram are now taken by this military group to Carthage. Notice their friends accompany them. As they get to Carthage in these little um, county seats, you always have a county square in the middle of the town. Uh, kind of like Salt Lake City has a Temple Square. So you've got these little county squares and, and they will pass by the county square. As they pass by, the county square will be filled with hundreds and hundreds of military men. They have come from counties throughout Illinois. You've got them coming from as far away as the city of Quincy and Macomb. They're, they're just all on the, on the square. Joseph and Hiram will pass by, and a block or so off the square was the one hotel in town. Living in the hotel at that time was Governor Thomas Ford. Despite the invitations he'd been given to come visit Nauvoo, instead, he accepted the invitation to come to Carthage. Now, wherever the governor lives, that is the state mansion, that's the state house, and uh, he's there temporary. Notice Springfield is his place of residence, but he's there temporary. And as Joseph and Hiram now come to the one hotel called the Hamilton Hotel, there's a lot of noise outside as Joseph and Hiram attempt to check in. What is it? But it's the military men from the square. There are hundreds of them. They now come to the hotel and they demand, they now know that Joseph and Hiram are in Carthage and they demand to see the prophet and patriarch. They scream and yell so loud that Governor Ford, who is residing on the second floor, he comes to the bay window, he leans out the bay window and he says to them, now you go back to the square of Joseph and his brother Hiram are here in Carthage. He said, I will bring with them with me tomorrow as I inspect the troops. Well, with that, Joseph's now checked in. We're now on June 25th. June 25th, early in the morning, Joseph Smith is now dressed and he's pounding on the door of Governor Ford. And he's saying to Governor Ford, I demand an audience. Now notice, recall, he is the mayor of one of the biggest towns in Nauvoo, he'd say, in addition, Joseph Smith is running for president of these United States, and he's now saying to Governor Ford, I demand an audience. Governor Ford says, I'll, uh, I'll meet with you, I'll speak with you, but not before I review the troops. So I want you to go back to your room, I want you to get Hiram, and then to come with me as I review the troops. Well, it's the most unusual reviewing of the troops. You've got all these troops on that Carthage Square. They've got their uniforms, they've got their guns, and they're lined on the periphery of the square. Governor Ford's on a horse. Joseph and Hiram are walking behind, but remember those 40 friends? They're surrounding Joseph and Hiram. Now, every man at that time had a walking stick. You know, the ground wasn't even. You, you wouldn't think of going outdoors without having your stick close. And uh, so what they're doing with their sticks, they're using them as weapons. 
and the sticks are flying, which means you've got sticks going at the side of Joseph, you've got him you know, right in front, you've got him behind, and uh, they're a stick. You'd say, well, that, that's not a very good weapon. I'd say, oh, yeah? You get a stick in motion. <laughs> what they're doing is they're looking over these military men to be able to see, is somebody pulling a knife, is somebody cocking a gun, and that stick, you're just going to you know, flip it at the guy, and uh, suddenly uh, the word is you, you protect Joseph and Hiram. So try and imagine what a crazy look. You have the governor saluting, nice uniform, yes, you know, da-da-da-da. Thank you, thank you, you're from where? Oh, it's so nice to meet you, as he's on his horse. And you've got Joseph and Hiram walking behind with a barrage of sticks in the front, in the back, and uh, through that, through the, I, I would hope that, I don't know of any women that were protecting them, but, but I hope we would have sent our husbands to do it, right? At least uh, brother somebody to help. Well, they make it all the way around the square and they get back to the hotel. As they get back to the hotel, Joseph's now knocking on the door of Governor Ford. As he does so, uh, the governor will answer and Joseph will ask, will you meet with me now? The governor says yes, and Joseph said, I just have one question. If you, he said, my, my life and the life of my brother Hiram we are safe as long as you're in this town. In other words, mobs wouldn't dare rule as long as the governor is in town. I mean, how stupid is that? He has brought his 60 elite troops. He has control of all the, the troops. Mobs are not going to rule when the governor's in town. And Joseph said, my question to you is, uh, if you leave Carthage, will you take us with you? And Governor Ford says yes. And Joseph then says, even if you were to go to beautiful Nauvoo, and he always called it beautiful Nauvoo, and Governor Ford said yes. Joseph now goes back to his room. He's with Hiram, and suddenly there's a knock on the door. As Joseph opens it up, the knock on the door represents, here's, here's who's visiting. It's the various generals of the militia troops that are out there on Carthage Square. As they uh, knocked on the door, they, they said, we, we wanted to get a good look at you. They said, we, we couldn't see you very well. You know, the barrage of sticks as you went around the square. He said, so, so, so we've, we've come to see you. And uh, Joseph then said, that's not why you've come. He then made a prophecy that we can't find in the Doctrine and Covenants. Too bad. Okay, but the prophecy, and it's his last. The prophecy was... Uh, the reason you've come to visit is because you seek my blood. And he said, I prophesy in the name of the Lord that there will come a time in your lives when you will see blood on the right, you'll see blood on the left, you'll begin to wallow in the blood. And he said, you'll be sick to death of blood. Well, I decided I wanted to see that Joseph's prophecy wasn't fulfilled, so I decided to follow the lives of these generals to see what, what happened to him. I mean, was the last prophecy fulfilled? Well, sure enough, each one will live to participate in the Civil War. And um, uh, most of them fought for the Union, but most of them were at just horrible battles. Uh, they're at Hornet's Nest, they're, they're at uh, Shiloh, they're at Gettysburg, and uh, they're a subordinate officer. They aren't the head honcho. <laughs> but uh, uh, each one of them, 
will write to their superior and will say, pull out, retreat, retreat. There's blood to this side. I'm, and each one of them in their, in their letters will write, I'm wallowing in blood. Well, okay, they now leave. Joseph uh, next, so remember we're on June 25th, right? On June 25th, Joseph and Hiram, now they need to go before a district judge to answer the charge of riding on the streets of Nauvoo as it relates to the Nauvoo Expositor. They and their 40 friends will now go to the courthouse. Uh, they're meeting before a judge named Robert Smith. No relation that we know of as it relates to Joseph and Hiram. They now want to know from Judge Smith, can you hold court today? In other words, you hold court, we're out of here. We're going to post bail. The judge then indicates that he has a full docket, and then he can't possibly hold court. Joseph and Hiram then want to know, can we post bail for riot? Rioting is a bailable offense. Uh, the judge becomes very flustered, and he indicates that, yes, they could post bail, but your bail will be $500 apiece. Now, this is at a time when, well, we should have been alive then. You could buy an acre for three bucks. And you're like, $500 apiece. I mean, it's not like infinity. Joseph doesn't have the money. Hiram doesn't have the money. But remember those 40 friends? When they stopped by their houses, they loaded their pockets with cash. In other words, they're not only going to defend Joseph, they're going to financially assist him. They take out these wads of money, they throw it on the judge's kind of stand. Uh, well over $1,000 comes forward. The judge then says that he would accept the money, but he now places Joseph and Hiram under house arrest. Now, where is the house arrest? The house arrest is at the Hamilton Hotel in Carthage. So the very place they're paying for the room that they had checked in the night before, they're now completely under arrest. So Joseph and Hiram return, but this time they return with the local sheriff, who's to sit outside their door, nobody goes inside, I mean, until the judge is able to hold court. Well, while the sheriff is sitting there, the judge will now issue another arrest warrant. This time the arrest for Joseph and Hiram is treason against the United States. For treason, it's the worst crime that you could perform in any country, but especially here at this time. So treason means you do not pass go, you go directly to jail, there's no bail, there's nothing. I mean, you, you are the worst of the hardened criminals. Why are they charged with treason? The academic answer says because Joseph dared to have call out the military. Remember the Nauvoo Legion and, uh, that are now basically unarmed? The, uh, the other reason goes like this. At that time in the United States, 26 states, they're looking towards a presidential election, right? And uh, you'd say one of the main themes of the presidential election coming up was something called manifest destiny. They would say the United States, one day we're gonna not be stopped basically at the Mississippi, one day we're gonna be sea to shining sea. And uh, people in the United States at that time talked about uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream 
about a little stone that would be cut out without hands that would roll forth and fill the whole earth. And uh, people, you remember Daniel's interpretation? People used to say, you know that manifest destiny? The United States is a stone. Both Hiram and Joseph had been heard to say, you know that little stone cut out without hands? It's not the United States. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For that treason, Joseph and Hiram are now escorted by the evening of June 25th to Carthage Jail. Notice where they spend the night. Carthage Jail, a two-story edifice. You all got to see this, right? Two-story edifice. Where they're going to spend the night is they'll spend the night in a debtor's cell on the first floor. At that time in the United States, if you were in debt and could not pay your bills, the head man of the household would be placed in a debtor's cell until family or friends could pay the bills. So by that point in the United States, 26 states, you've got 70,000 men are incarcerated throughout the United States in these debtor cells. And uh, so Joseph and Hiram will spend the night in the debtor's cell along with friends. We're now on June 26th. June 26th, it's early in the morning. Uh, Joseph and Hiram on that day will have the opportunity to have the run of the house. And uh, you'd said they, they're, they pay for their food. If you want to eat and you're in a debtor's cell, you have to pay for your food. And they can sit at the table with the jailer, his wife, his family. And on that day, they will have 40 friends that come to visit. Now, uh, among those that come to visit, no one is more important than Governor Thomas Ford. As Thomas Ford comes to visit, Joseph then says to Governor Ford, I just have one question for you. If you were to leave this town, will you take my brother and myself with you? And Governor Ford says, oh, yes. Joseph then said, even if you were to go to beautiful Nauvoo? And Governor Ford says, yes. Well, they have uh, many visitors. Latter-day Saints come to visit. Everybody wants to know, what can I do to help? One you'll, you'll find of interest, one coming to visit is Uncle John Smith. Uncle John has been the stake president Zarahemla. Before that, the stake president Adamon Diam, and he's our first stake president in the Salt Lake Valley. He comes to see his nephews and he says, what can I do to help? Joseph says to him, go, go tell Alma W. Babbitt, who had been a Kirtland stake president and was now a branch president in Ramus, but in section 124, Alma W. Babbitt is told, beware of the golden calf. Well, here comes uh, Uncle John Smith, goes to see this attorney who practiced in five different states and as he comes to see him, he says, I, I've come from Carthage. He said, Alman, do you know that, that Joseph and Hiram are in Carthage jail? And Babbitt says, yes, I do know that. And Uncle John said, oh, good. He said, Joseph told me to come find you to tell, tell you that he wants you to defend him in the court of law. And Alma W. Babbitt said, oh, Uncle John, you're too late. I've already been hired by the other side. So, uh, you know, you got, you got visitors, you got the good guys, bad guys. Okay, two people that will visit will leave Joseph and Hiram weapons. 
Now, one of those will be John Taylor. He will walk in faking that he has a limp, and oops, did I leave my walking stick? You know, uh, you get pistols being left, you get two walking sticks. Joseph will take those upstairs into the upstairs bedroom where he and others will spend uh, that night, the night of June 26. We're now the morning of June 27th, the day of the martyrdom. Are you ready? June 27th, early in the morning, Joseph and Hiram are awakened because Latter-day Saints in town come with amazing news. The news is Governor Thomas Ford has left Carthage. Now, uh, wow, he didn't pull the trigger, but uh, at one point, I'm in Nauvoo, I'm standing next to President Hinckley, we all remember him, and he's being introduced to the 37th governor of Illinois. And uh, before President Hinckley shook his hand, he said, I, I trust that you are a better governor than Thomas Ford. And uh, at which point uh, the governor said, well, sure I am, I'm a Republican. <laughs> and, but he'd say, well, Thomas Ford, so the word has come to Joseph early in the jail, June 27th, Thomas Ford has left town. Where did he go? He went to Nauvoo. Uh, where is he at 515? And you'd say, he's in the mansion house, Joseph's mansion house. Uh, Emma is feeding him. He's sitting next to his secretary of state, uh, Major Brayson. He's, uh, there are military men all around. Thomas Ford has, is heard to have turned to his secretary of state and said, the deed is done. We must hurry. So uh, good feelings about Thomas Ford? Hardly. So uh, Thomas Ford has left. When Joseph now knows that Thomas Ford has left, Joseph now knows the end is coming. In other words, mobs can rule when the governor is not in town. Joseph will have many visitors in the morning, and I don't think it's any coincidence that by one in the afternoon, he only has two visitors. Ten members of the Quorum of the Twelve are serving political missions to put forward Joseph Smith's campaign for President of these United States. Brigham Young's in, and Wilford Woodruff, they're in Boston. Orson Hyde, Orson Pratt, they're in Washington, D.C. Uh, William Smith, he's in Michigan, and the list goes on and on. Who are the only two members not serving political missions, not saying, we've had Whig presidents, we've had Democratic presidents, now it's time to have the President of the United States, General Joseph Smith, who's not saying that? Who are the only two behind? John Taylor and Willard Richards. So of all the visitors Joseph had in the morning of June 27th, by the time you're at close to one o'clock, there's only two visitors, the only two apostles not serving as a, a political type of mission. About one o'clock, the jailer signal. He will look outside of the jail, outside the windows, and he will see that a mob of 100, growing to about 200, is beginning to form. Now, how you know a mob is forming is because of what they have on their personage. In the South, if mobs were to rule, they covered their faces with white sheets, 
white pillowcases. And suddenly you know they're about to do something that isn't legal. That's, that's the definition of mob. They're, they're about to do something that isn't legal. Now, um, okay, in the north, of which Illinois was above that Mason-Dixon line, in the north, if a mob is going to rule, they cover themselves with black paint. Joseph had seen that look in Hiram, Ohio. How you, how you do this, the disguise, black paint uh, is merely a mixture of gunpowder and water, and you put it on your face. Now, I've been doing makeup for years, and I'm telling you, even how I look today, you'd know exactly who it was, right? And, uh, you know, I don't care if you wear green paint, you know, green makeup, blue, I, you know, we, we know who it is. So the North didn't have such a good disguise. And so, uh, you know, you think, what, what if the guy lit up his smoke? <laughs> you know, like, boom, you know, here goes the eyebrows, you'd be in real trouble. But once the jailer begins to see the bucket of gunpowder and water passed among these hundreds of men, the jailer now knows that mobs are going to rule, and he cannot protect Joseph, even though he has at his disposal a group called the, quote, Carthage Grays, which means you can get in the Carthage Grays, but only if you have gray hair. So how strong are these men? Eh, I don't know. You know, in the case of George, of course, very strong, but, but you know, <laughs> okay. All right, so here we go. All right, as the jailer begins to see the bucket being passed among these men, he now turns to Joseph and Hiram and says, you will be safer in the jail portion of the home. In other words, you're not safe out here with the windows in the house. You need to get upstairs to the second floor where we have small, you know, there's, uh, you know, it's just, it would be hard to get a bullet through. Joseph now turns to his two guests. The first one he turns to is Dr. Willard Richards. Now, we always called Willard Richards doctor. Uh, Willard Richards did not have a medical certificate. He had attended a Thompsonian medical school for about eight weeks. And the school never pronounced himself a doctor, but Willard Richards pronounced himself a doctor. And uh, what was he good? At one point, there was a man in Nauvoo that needed to have his leg cut off, and Willard Richards cut off his leg, and he, he charged the man $50.50. And the man says, hey, just round it off. I, I just want a $50 charge. Willard said, no, your, your bill is $50.50. And the man asked why. And Willard said, well, I charged you $50 because I knew how to cut off your leg and 50 cents because I did it. Well, okay, so Joseph now turns to Willard Richards and uh, he, says, he says to Willard, Dr. Richards, Will you go with me to the jail portion of the home? And Willard Richards' comment was, Joseph, you didn't ask me to cross with you over to Iowa. You didn't ask me to come with you to Carthage. But if you are found guilty of treason, remember, that's the big charge. If you are found guilty of treason, he said, I will be hung in your stead, which hanging was, uh, was the penalty if you're found guilty of treason. And so the first man up the stairs was Willard Richards. Uh, the, uh, Joseph now turns to John, John Taylor, and says, what say you, John? And John said, Willard has spoken for us both. So the first two up the stairs of Carthage Jail 
then our Willard Richards, John Taylor, followed by Hiram, and last, our 38-and-a-half-year-old Joseph. Now, they will never spend time in the jail portion, which is a one-room part of the house, but they will spend from 1 until 5.15 in the, the jailer's bedroom. So what are they doing in the jailer's bedroom? Well, obviously, they can stand up. They can watch the crowd milling outside and more men arriving and putting more of this black paint on their face. But two kind of significant events happen during those four hours. One is the jailer had a copy of a book by Josephus, a great old Jewish historian. And so they will take time to read from that book. So it's hard to read, but let's say you've got some free time. You know, try it on the internet. It's everywhere. So the book of Josephus, they will, at least on June 27th, they will read a portion of that. The most famous will be the singing of John Taylor. Why have John Taylor sing? And it's because mobs sing. Now, uh, when a mob is going to do something, and we're talking 1844, they will sing before they do it. So, for example, my mother taught me my first mob song. And uh, it was One Little, Two Little, Three Little Indians. Remember that one? And I remember this song, if you sing it right, you get all the way to 10. And I think she probably thought she was teaching me to count, right? But then if you're a mob, you sing it backwards. 10 little, 9 little, 8 little Indians. And by the time you get to there are no little Indian boys, you go and mobs rule. So a mob outside was singing. And uh, it's kind of like, you know, we come to church and we all talk and we're, you know, everybody's having fun. We're all friends. And then, you know, you know, the bishop, hey, well, okay, opening song. And suddenly you start singing. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'm with you. And suddenly we are at one and we focus. So the mob outside was singing the, to the tune of little Hebrew children. Uh, one verse has been preserved. They sang, where now is the prophet Joseph? Where now is the prophet Joseph? And the answer is, you yell out, safe in Carthage jail. And then the chorus is one of riotous laughter. I always thought, wouldn't it be great to see a, you know, the duo sing, somebody representing John Taylor, somebody the mob, and you get, where now is the prophet Joseph? Where now is the patriarch? Hiram, safe in Carthage jail. And this riotous laughter while he sings a poor wafering man of grief, right? So amidst, as the crowds outside, the mob, begins to sing, John Taylor will be asked to sing A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, and he'll be asked to sing it twice. In other words, how do you keep yourself calm when all of a sudden you can hear the riotous laughter and the singing outside, and you know that what had just been milling around and we're all okay, you know, you got two opposing groups, one's uh, protected by walls and the other just milling. Okay, suddenly they sing and you know it's about to happen. Okay, why have him sing? He had an amazing tenor voice. And um, uh, the song of Poor Wayfaring Man was just becoming popular in Illinois among many different churches. But we're one of the few churches that still sing it. I mean, the thing's so long. And uh, so, but uh, John Taylor, um, he, he, well, years later, when he was a prophet and he'd have businessmen come to complain about uh, water rights disputes or other things going on, 
uh, husband and wife unhappy with each other, he would always start his counseling sessions by singing a verse of a hymn. And then he would then ask, is there still a problem? And if you said yes, he would sing and sing until you would say, there's no problem here, President Taylor. And uh, in his mind, he always believed that the song of the heart could change the, the tenor of any difficult situation. So he sang a poor wayfaring man of grief. He sang it twice. And uh, suddenly now, um, mob is breaking into the jail. As they break into the jail, Joseph grabs one of the guns that had been under the jailer's bed. Remember that yesterday, four friends bringing things? Uh, Joseph grabs a gun. Uh, Hiram Smith grabs a gun. John Taylor grabs a walking stick. Willard Richards grabs a walking stick. And the goal of everyone is to shut that door. As they attempt to shut the door, and you've got guns now trying to get in, the first man to be shot will be Hiram Smith. Uh, Hiram's an older brother. He's 44. He's six years older. Hiram, where he's shot, he's shot in the nose, and he will fall back, and Hiram's last words are, I am a dead man. We then turn to John Taylor. John Taylor, with his stick, has been trying to knock down the barrels of the gun. So he's trying to knock it down. And uh, John Taylor will eventually drop his gun. And his conclusion is, I'm going to go across the floor. And I'm going to jump out the window. And I'm going to run for help because we've got lots of Latter-day Saints. Remember those 40 friends? And there's other missionaries in town. And so John now uh, drops his stick. He begins to work his way across the floor. And at this point, John Taylor is shot four different times. So he's shot in his wrist, okay? He's shot in his hip. He's shot in both legs. But I don't know if it's adrenaline or whatever. He's still moving, moving. He can climb up onto the, um, the, the window seal, at which point then, you know, and there's always some question, was uh, did a bullet hit the watch? Did he knock against the the edge of the windowsill, but John Taylor now is thrust back into the room. As John Taylor wrote it, he was shot, uh, probably aiming at his heart, it hits his pocket watch, and he's back in the room. John has no more fight, and now attempts to crawl under the one kind of single bed in the room. We then turn to Joseph Smith, great prophet, the prophet of the Restoration, and uh, wow, Okay, Joseph Smith, by this point, he now drops his gun, and he goes directly to Hiram, his brother. He says to Hiram, my dear brother Hiram. He then stands up, and he walks to the window seal. Now, window seals were much bigger than, than we make window seals today, and it was because you couldn't get, um, you know, you wanted to still read, and so you would sit in the window seal and you would read so you could have more of the light as the sun starts to go down. So that was the purpose of these big window seals. And Joseph now easily can sit on the window seal. He raises his hands high. He's shot in the back. And the last words that he was heard to say was, Oh, Lord, my God. He falls face down next to what was then an open well outside. We then turn to Willard Richards. 
Willard Richards is the biggest target in the room. If you've seen pictures of him, you're related to him, he's your guy to thank for it, right? So Willard Richards, he's one of the very few men that have been called to be an apostle while still a bachelor. So, you know, tell your sons to hold out. But okay, so uh, Willard Richards, he's been trying to knock down uh, the barrels of the gun. He goes to Hiram. Remember, he's a doctor of sorts. He ascertains that Hiram is dead. He then goes over to John Taylor. He tries to push him uh, up against the wall so that he will not be shot anymore. And as he's pushing John, he looks up. He sees Joseph at the windowsill. He hears Joseph say, Oh, Lord, my God. Willard Richards, and he sees him fall. Willard Richards now, with no thought of his own life, will jump to the window. Now, Willard had... Uh, it. Joseph had prophesied of Willard that one day he would be among friends, but balls, meaning bullets, would fly like hail, but none would pierce his clothing. Well, none pierced his clothing, but Willard Richards, when he stands up at that window seal, he is shot through the earlobe. Now, I've had students tell me it's our first general authority with a pierced ear, and, uh, you know, their generation is rising up. There will be more, you know, but, okay, so Willard Richards is obviously just minor hurt. Now, when um, Joseph now is down, the mobs begin to howl, and the mobs, uh, a mob, you know, always howls like a wolf. And uh, the reason they, they do the howling like a wolf, in the case of Joseph Smith, is because they believed that Joseph was a wolf among the sheep. And now all the great people in Nauvoo, they can go back to be Baptists, you know, uh, Methodists, whatever they were before they joined Mormonism. Because with the death of Joseph, Mormonism they view as dead. They begin to howl. After they finish howling, several now begin to shoot at Joseph, being, wanting to be able to say their gun killed old Joe. So they propped him up against the jail. And finally, one man in the crowd yells, the Mormons are coming. Now, I don't know if you heard the Mormons are coming today, you'd think, oh good, they're doing a service project. <laughs> okay, <laughs> they got their yellow shirts, or just serve, whatever it is, you know, but you say the Mormons are coming back then, you've got uh, at least 3,000 men in the Nauvoo Legion, you've got, well, just Orrin Porter Rockwell alone, you know, so uh, you, you say the Mormons are coming, a mob always appears brave, unless in this case in the north, you were to take him to a horse trough, you wash off your face, you say, I know who you are, I'm, you know, I'm charging with murder, I'm taking you, you know. So uh, all of a sudden the mob now disperse. They disperse so quickly that Willard Richards, now up in the jail, is able to take a very wounded John Taylor from that bedroom, take him into the jail portion upstairs. John is saying, take me with you. And Willard says, no. He said, I go outside to see Joseph and perhaps to face my death. So Willard Richards, by the time he's got and carried John over to the jail cell to try and protect him from further harm, Willard Richards comes racing outside. By the time he's outside, he's the only one with Joseph. Now uh, he holds Joseph and he begins to sob. 
you can imagine we're all ambulance chasers. Um, you know, well, you know, on the freeway today, can I describe it? So, uh, you know, we're, we're all got that kind of what, what's going on, and suddenly the town of Carthage get all these people coming. When the Latter-day Saints came, Willard will say to them, take Joseph, take Hiram, is already up there, you stay in that bedroom, you don't let anybody in, and you guard them, guard their bodies with your very lives. So Latter-day Saints that came early, their job is you go up and you guard them. For uh, as others began to come, Willard Richards will ultimately take John Taylor and will carry him and take him over to the Hamilton Hotel, just as an aside. When he does that at the Hamilton Hotel, uh, he says to the uh, Artois Hamilton, the owner of the hotel, he will say to him, now you run and you get a surgeon. And uh, John Taylor said he didn't get the surgeon, he got the local butcher. And uh, when he came back, John Taylor was operated on. And they took the bullet out of his wrist, out of his hip, out of his right leg, but the bullet in his left leg, the surgeon slash butcher, uh, it was too intertwined that he, he did not remove that. And uh, did John Taylor take any alcoholic beverage as the guy, you know, cuts into him? And uh, the, the doctor tried to get him to take it, and John Taylor refused. He said, I want to look my assassin in the eye, so I will recognize you in the next life and hold you accountable. But uh, John Taylor will survive it, but all the days of John's life, he walked with a cane. And, uh, you know, I mean, he could not get up here. He couldn't walk. He walked with a cane. It was on the left side. It was like he had a limp like Joseph did. So you'd see John Taylor, you'd, you'd think Joseph. And John Taylor won't die till, well, he won't die till well into the 1880s. And when he died, obviously he's an old man, and there are going to be several causes of death, but one of them was a blood clot formed where the bullet was left in his leg. So to some extent, you know, 40-plus years later, John Taylor is uh, also a martyr to the Carthage jail experience. Well, Willard Richards sends a message back to Nauvoo. And uh, notice in the Quorum of the Twelve, he's not the youngest in the Quorum and seniority, but he's, he's down there. But he's now in charge because where are the other 10 members of the Quorum of the Twelve? They're out there on those political missions. They're somewhere in the 26 states. And Willard Richards, uh, John Taylor's not talking. Willard Richards now sends back an amazing message to Nauvoo. The message to Nauvoo is Joseph the prophet is dead. Hiram, the patriarch, is dead. Willard Richards is wounded. He doesn't say how bad. He goes, Willard Richards is wounded. Or, or John Taylor's wounded. And then Willard Richards says, and I give my word that we will not retaliate. To the credit of the good people of Nauvoo, they did not retaliate. Well, you realize I could go on and on. We just, I mean, you know, don't you feel sorry for George? <laughs> He'll say something that will just kick me off. So, uh, okay. There will be a funeral uh, eulogy and a funeral. It will be held right uh, near the story and a half high Nauvoo Temple. And uh, the man asked to give the funeral eulogy. 
will be W.W. Phelps, the man that wrote the Spirit of God. But on this occasion, what was his funeral eulogy? His funeral eulogy was the song, Praise to the Man. Now, praise to the man who communes with Jehovah. Millions shall know Brother Joseph again. I am so grateful of all my blessings to be one of the millions who can profess, I, I know Joseph. I can't name every blade of grass he stepped on, but I'm getting closer. I, I know Joseph, and he was a prophet of God. Now, in conclusion, I want to say something about June 27th. June 27th, you know, they, they rebuilt the magnificent Nauvoo Temple. And everyone wondered when it will be dedicated. And, uh, you know, some thought maybe April 6th, organization of the church. And some thought May 15th, uh, the priesthood, Iranian priesthood restored. And when was it dedicated? June 27th. And uh, Tabernacle Choir came. And, uh, you know, they sang, the men sang in the corners, praise to the man. I got to go because uh, uh, general authority wives needed someone to escort them and show them around. And, you know, it's nothing like being a dancing chicken. But, okay, so, so there I was. And, uh, you know, so it was just amazing. But then President Hinckley stands up, and you think, well, what is he going to talk about? I mean... You know, it's June 27th, and you've got people, you know, satellite broadcasting. I mean, we're all in stake centers everywhere. And uh, before he dedicated the magnificent temple, he uh, decided, I want to tell everybody about Thomas Ford. Why was that significant? You know, well, I just almost fell off my chair when he did it. And uh, the reason was, well, I don't know what his reason was, but in my mind, Thomas Ford has written one of the most boring history books you would we would ever read. And he wrote the history of Illinois. But there's one section in it that's just, you know, can light your hair on fire. I mean, it's just, he writes in it, Thomas Ford writes that he has three greatest fears. And one fear was that um, people would keep alive the name of Joseph Smith. Well, I'm looking at an audience of amazing women. What have you done? You've kept alive the name of Joseph Smith. I mean, look what you've done. You're sending kids on missions. I mean, your sacrifice phenomenal. You've done this and this. Okay, so, so that one obviously fulfilled. His second greatest fear was that place names of nowhere towns. Like, do you know Nauvoo struggles to have a 1,000 people in town? And uh, Carthage, even less. Okay, uh, the whole, in 2010, they did a census of Hancock County, of which Carthage is a, the, the county seat. The whole county only increased, there was only one town in the county that increased by one called Elveston that went up to 151. And you're like, are you kidding me? Okay, so Thomas Ford, what's his second big fear? And it was that nowhere places like Carthage, uh, Nauvoo, Palmyra, would become as familiar to people on this earth as uh, Gethsemane and Bethlehem. Well, uh, don't your kids know not the name of Nauvoo? As well as uh, they can say, oh yeah, well they're in Bethlehem and Nazareth. And, okay, so his worst fear, the thing he feared the most, was there would be some speaker that would rise up and link his name with Herod and Pontius Pilate. Who is that great speaker?
Well, a guy I could almost look eyeball to eyeball with. You know, you'd say, President Gordon B. Hinckley, what's your date? June 27th, when 2002. Nauvoo Temple is being dedicated. Praise to the man is being sung. And there's a pretty short guy prophet that says, I want to tell you about a man named Thomas Ford. He didn't pull the trigger, but he just might as well have, right? Well, everyone, I hope you love the prophet Joseph. I thank you for your willingness to spend an hour with me. I am grateful for my blessings in life, but may I repeat, none greater than praise to the man who communes with Jehovah. Millions shall know Brother Joseph again. I am so grateful to just be one of those millions and to be one of the millions in Release Society and all the great things it means to be a sister in this church. And I say this humbly in Jesus' name, amen.